Listeners, we want to tell you about a Reformed Baptist publishing company, Free Grace Press. Free Grace Press is firmly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and biblical truth as expressed by the historic Reformed confessions, such as the 1689 London Baptist Confession. They seek to propagate books and tracts that are spiritually inspirational, doctrinally educational, and practically helpful for the Church of God. We want to encourage you to support this ministry by purchasing their products. So you can learn more about them at freegracepress.com. Again, that is Free Grace Press. Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We pray you find this resource edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Now, let's get started. So, it's important to understand that God is not creature in any sense. He is not the thing made. He is the maker. I, I think I'm quoting William Ames or somebody like that. Maintain that creator-creature distinction throughout our uh, theological musings, or else we're going to do something that's potentially disastrous. And um, actually, I deal with that in in chapter 5. I think you're going to ask a question about that, too. Yeah, yeah. And just concerning this point before we move on, uh, the pithy statement that you write in your book that was really helpful for me to grasp this point was, that God does not tinker with himself in order to reveal himself. So thank you for that. And yeah. uh, we can move this conversation on to uh, chapter five. Chapter five is the most lengthy chapter of the book. Uh, in it, you engage some contemporary writers who both subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says essentially the same thing in chapter four, paragraph one as the second London Um, What do these authors teach us as it relates to creation and God? How does it contradict the Westminster, and what is the problem with their views? I reserve the right to buy the book. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is important to answer that question, because this is the potentially uh, controversial chapter of the book. And um, I, I... I didn't write it to be, you know, controversial and all that stuff. I wrote it because I was frustrated with some statements um, by John Frame and Scott Oliphant in many of their published uh, books and articles and how men were using those, um, other men were using those statements as like aha statements um, to deny a more traditional version of impassibility initially, um, but other things as well. So I, I thought, you know, we're speaking at a conference and James Dozel had brought some of this material up, some of these issues up uh, three years prior uh, when we did chapter two and I thought um, this could be helpful to piggyback on what James did and develop some of these things more. And uh, when I delivered the lectures, it was butchered. I mean, I think the lecture on this issue was like 40 minutes and I had like five hours of material and it was 
terrible. I wasn't happy with what I did. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to give it due diligence and try to try to interact with what these men are saying. And basically what both of them say is that, um, given creation, God does somehow, some way add, uh, features to himself for lack of a better word. Um, and they say it in different ways, but they're saying basically the same thing. And I think it assumes a problem. Um, given classical Christian theism and its understanding of divine transcendence, uh, how can the transcendent one, the one that is other than creation, different from it, how can he uh, relate to his creation? How can it be imminent? Uh, if he's, you know, wholly other. And so they, they, they see that, I think they see that as a problem to be solved. Um, I don't think it's a problem if you understand both transcendence and imminent properly, uh, but they seek to solve it by um, either covenantal properties is the language I think Scott Alton used to use. Uh, um, I don't He's going to still use that language. He, he has a, a public statement that um, that was given on the Westminster Seminary uh, website that uh, he's no longer going to argue with his position. But I went ahead and dealt with his material because it's in print and it's in a lot of his books. It's not just in one book. Um, it's in several books and it's very influential. So um, that is the lengthiest chapter. It's the most most uh, detailed arguments. Well, it might not be. It might be second to chapter six. I'm not sure, but um, I, I didn't do it out of a mean-spirited, you know, nasty-hearted, aha, I got you kind of thing. Um, I hope my motives were right in addressing you and. Um, you know, I ran that chapter by uh, by a lot of people before uh, it was it was published, and I actually chose eight um, OPC ministers, theologians, um, and I think I knew most, maybe maybe all of them beforehand. And I sent it to them. I said, "Hey, is this going to cause trouble? Uh, are the arguments sound?" Um, should it be in print? And to a man, they said, of course it should be in print. We need help thinking through these issues. Hmm. So that's why it uh, was so long and detailed, and uh, hopefully it'll help people sort through the issues. And that's why they should buy the book. So listener, again, buy the book. Yeah, but... yeah buy the book. <laughs> um, help me retire. <laughs> The, the title of the book, again, is Trinity and Creation. And so um, perhaps uh, really important for the purpose of the book, what does it mean to confess Trinitarian creation and where is this concept taught in the scriptures? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Uh, I would say that creation is just an act of God, and God is Son and Holy Spirit. So I, I think in the book I say that the work of creation was not parceled out among the three persons of the Godhead, the Father does one-third, the Son does one-third, the Spirit does one-third, or the Father commissions uh, 
agents of creation, namely the Son and Spirit, but it has nothing to do with creation, the act of creation itself. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit are co-agents of the same or one divine act of bringing being into being that was not in being prior to it being brought into being. Um, I think that's very important. Now, where does the scripture teach this? Well, anytime the work of creation is attributed to the Father um, and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, usually not in the same text, although there are a few texts that seem to indicate that, um, we have to really think hard about those texts. Um, Nothing is coming to being that is coming to being apart from him. That is the word in John chapter 1. Does that mean things that have come into being were the exclusive product of the independent act of the Son apart from the Father and the Holy Spirit? And the answer is uh, no. And that should have been settled already in chapter 2, you know, the confession. Um, but, this, you know, the scripture, and people have said this before, scripture wasn't written as a systematic theology or as a confession of faith, okay? It's a history of redemption. It's God acting and then God raising up a penman to record his acts and sometimes explaining the acts at the first recording of the divine act uh, and other times just stating the acts of God without fully explaining the theology behind them uh, until later. And, and it's okay, scripture does that, explains the acts of God recorded in previous uh, revelation. Scripture sometimes explains those acts later, later. And it doesn't change the act of God, it just enhances our knowledge uh, of, of that act. And so this happens when scripture uh, predicates of each person the divine act of creation simply because the son is singled out as the uh, author of creation excuse me in john one doesn't exclude the father and spirit as uh, co-agents of creation because all divine works external to god are undivided Trinitarian works, um, not only creation, but also providence and the work of grace and consummation. That's the Christian confession. That's the mystery of the Trinity. And so I think it's very important to realize that, that the concept is taught in Scripture, uh, a Trinitarian creation, but not always in the easiest manner to, to detect. Uh, I think it's very important. Um, I think I, well, I haven't mentioned, but that book by Scott Swain, The Introduction to the Trinity, or The Trinity and Introduction, mm-hmm. of, of its many uh, excellent qualities, one of the things that Mr. Swain helps readers with is he, he, he helps you understand a, a, a reading strategy, a way to read scripture that's found in scripture itself in terms of how scripture presents the doctrine of the trinity sometimes it's through in very subtle places 
a massive truth is being asserted. And if you don't have the proper reading apparatus in place, uh, by the way, which is best learned by reading scripture over and over and over and over again. In my hermeneutics class, I think it's Augustine, one of the first points for being a good scripture Bible interpreter is reading the Bible. And then he says, and memorizing large portions of it, if not the whole thing, you know, stuff like that. So the more you read scripture, the more you see these, these contours, these, these modes of revelation um, that the scripture writers use that indicate um, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-agents of creation, and it is not parceled out. So the book by, uh, uh, there's another book, uh, the one by Fred Sanders, is very helpful on a Trinitarian uh, reading strategy. I, I tried to do that a little in my book as well, but those guys, you know, they're very well known and they're, they're especially Fred's an expert on Trinity stuff. And you learn how to read scripture better uh, by reading those books and, uh, and you'll see it more and more and more. Amen. Amen. Well, you previously alluded that we were going to talk about the triad uh, in chapter four, Paragraph one of the confession, power, wisdom, and goodness. What is the significance of this triad? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to say read the book, but I'll explain it just a little. Um, I, my gut, when I started studying this to uh, present the lectures at the conference, was that there's something important about this, tri this triad. Um, so I started you know, reading background material on it and reading books on Trinity, reading books on creation, uh, reading books explaining the confession. Um, and then I started, at some point, I picked up uh, the Reformation Heritage books, four volumes set on creeds and confessions of the Reformation and post-Reformation period. And I and I just started reading on, on, on creation. And I realized, you know what? This triad predates the Westminster uh, uh, Confession. It was in other confessions as well. And not only was it in other confessions, there were at least one or two of them that seemed to indicate that it was, it was, it was something they had retrieved from previous generations. So I, I'm not sure who it was. It could have been Emory, the Roman Catholic reading his introduction to the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. When I first uh, became aware of this, that, that's probably it. That was back in, I don't know, 2012 or 13, James Goldwell told me to read it. And so I read it. Um, and he had, uh, another, he has another book on Aquinas and the Trinity. He deals with this triad over time took on a Trinitarian flavor, uh, Power, referring to uh, the Father, referring to the Son, goodness, referring to the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what's going on there. Um, it's, it's a fascinating triad. You know, triads, uh, some people say, well, they got it from Augustine. Well, if you read the New Testament, I think there's like over 30 triads that seem to indicate, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity behind the scenes there. So. It, it predates Augustine too, but it developed over time into a, 
into a, a shorthand of uh, for Trinitarian creation. And then our last question I'll ask before we uh, give some final encouragements. What is the doctrine of appropriations and how does John Owen help us to understand this doctrine as it relates to this question? Oh, that's a huge question, huh? <laughs> well, uh, I'll just quote the phenomenon of attributing distinct external works to individual persons of the Trinity has a technical name, and that technical name is appropriations. Now, here, here's what it asserts, and um, I think I'm, yes, I am quoting Emory here. The attribution of an essential reality of a divine action or of a created effect common to the three divine persons to one person in a special way. I already cited John chapter one, uh, I think it's verse three, where John says, nothing that is coming to being is coming to being apart from him, that is, the word. So here is an attribution of a divine action, creation, to one person in a special way. So the doctrine of appropriations claims that sometimes the Bible attributes the common external divine work of creation to a particular divine person. Uh, again, John 1 and 3. Um, and we saw this, and uh, we can see this, for instance, in Job 26, 13. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. Now, we know that the act of creation is a divine act, therefore it's a Trinitarian act, but sometimes scripture attributes uh, the undivided Trinitarian act to a distinct person. And I think the reason why the scripture does that is, and I tease this out in the book, and I'm leaning on others before me, and I didn't invent this, um, is to reveal to us something about the relation of origin within uh, the Godhead. So th there's a big question here. How do we account um, or these distinct acts of distinct persons, apparently being attributed to, in the Job 26 text, the Spirit. How do we account for this in light of the fact that the external works of the Trinity are undivided? So that's what chapter six tries to do. And I use um, John Owen as a helpmate, both to show that what I'm arguing is not new and as uh, I think a good example of really, I mean, drill down deep into the hovering work of the spirit in just uh, one, two. And I think he did a fabulous, um, fabulous job articulating um, a Trinitarian creation in light of attributions uh, to, uh, in this case, the third person of, uh, of the Trinity. Now there's, it, you know, you can see this. Um, well, I'm not going to go any further. So it's pretty, it's a pretty technical issue. That might be the more, one of the more technical, if not the, the most technical, uh, chapters in the book. But I, I think it's very helpful, and it's being retrieved 
I'm not the only one writing on this stuff. I'm just trying to take what I read. And what's interesting, when I write a book, I try to convince myself. It's probably good and not good. I mean, it would, would be not good if you wrote a book and you didn't convince yourself. Um, but not everybody thinks like me. But there is this movement uh, back into the sources of Christian theology uh, that is mining this particular doctrine out in a very helpful way. Matter of fact, I think that um, Scott Swain's book probably does that. And I'm, I think I'm even more sure that uh, Matthew Barrett Simply Trinity, which should come out, I think, in March of 2021. He deals with inseparable operations and appropriation in that book. That's that's going to be a very helpful book. Um, so that would be my short answer. Well, I have been encouraged by this conversation, but for our listeners, what uh, final encouragements do you have? as it relates to confessing Trinitarian creation and worshiping the triune creator? Yeah, I would say read the best books on the issue. And of course, the best book is, is the Bible. Um, but God has raised up teachers. I've already mentioned Scott Swain's new book on the Trinity. Uh, that would be a starter book. It's very helpful. And it'll give you, like I said before, kind of a reading strategy. It'll help you see how scripture itself reveals um, God to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I also think uh, that you should read old hymns. If you have a, our church uses the Trinity hymnal, there's a section where it has hymns on the Trinity, on the doctrine of the Trinity. Read those and see what those hymn writers uh, wrote. And I think you'll marvel at some of the deep theology that's in those older hymns. Um, and then as far as uh, worship goes, uh, you know, the hymns, but the public worship of the church, I know what's helped uh, our people is uh, we sing the doxology, which is very Trinitarian, um, at the beginning of our service, because it's a call to worship, and then we sing the Gloria Patri at the end, every service, um, mm. doxology, and, and Gloria Patri, because it, it really um, chastens our minds in a Trinitarian fashion. And um, I know it's been helpful to our people to think as Christians when we're worshiping, to think in a tri Trinitarian uh, manner. So Swain's book helps you with a reading strategy to understand scripture better. Old hymns will help you see some of the stuff that uh, uh, Swain mentions, but of course they put it in a more worshipful uh, context and attitude. And then if you lead public worship, you know, if you're a pastor, try to integrate more of a Trinitarian flavor every week in your worship service, and that will, that will help people. I, I've had this lady came up to me one time. I don't know when it was. And I don't know what I was preaching on. But she made a comment, not only about the sermon, but about our liturgy, our order of worship. Pastor, I learn every week. I'm reminded of who God is. And I was very happy when, when she said that. I probably said, could you repeat that, please? I, <laughs> I love hearing. But I think it's very important. Um, you know, it's one thing to say we're Trinitarians. It's another to try to formulate a liturgy 
uh, that reflects that on a weekly basis. So that's my recommendation. That's my encouragement. Hmm. Well, Dr. Barcellus, thank you so much for taking uh, your time to talk about this book that you've written. And thank you so much for the work itself. Austin, thanks for having me. I hope, uh, hope it was helpful and um, appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk with you today. And to our listeners, as has been mentioned, we want to encourage you to get the book and buy it and read it. And we want to wish you grace and peace as we sign off. For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.
For additional content, check out our blog ministry at covenantconfessions.com. Also, keep up with our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Next, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Lastly, thank you for listening to the Covenant Podcast. Grace and peace to you.